Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a bi-weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join our host, Jenna Kelly, as she dives into the world of attachment theory and trauma with field experts from across the nation. Hey there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly. I hope this interview finds you well wherever you're listening or watching today. And I'm really excited and honored to share this next conversation with you because I get to sit down with an old friend and colleague, Dr. Caitlin Fortunati, who, and we just get to nerd out and talk about a really important topic that I don't think gets enough attention, which is children and families who are impacted by parental incarceration. And Dr. Fortunati has really just made this her life's work. Uh, She's a licensed clinical social worker. She also has her doctorate in social work and her dissertation specifically was focused on um, looking at the attachment patterns of children with uh, parental incarceration. These were mostly case studies. And that's really what she brings to this conversation is practical knowledge from working with children and families directly for many years, identifying gaps and needs. And in some cases, when you can't find something, then she wrote her own children's book because she was trying to help children feel more reflected in in the stories that were already out there. Um, and so she she brings both that, that practical and that research lens to it and also tries to really bring the voice of the children who are impacted by this huge issue that there's so much shame and stigma around. So we talk about that. We talk about practical strategies. If you have ever worked with or loved or been involved with a a child or family who's been impacted by parental incarceration, you're going to want to hear this. She breaks it down and helps me think about things that you just wouldn't normally think about without having the direct field experience, like how to prepare a child for a visit to a correctional facility. So I'll tell you a little bit more about about Caitlin, and then you'll get to hear the beautiful interview for yourself. She's an experienced and licensed psychotherapist with a demonstrated history of working in mental health, specializing in children with incarcerated parents. And she's author of children's books that we're going to talk about in the interview that you can get for as free PDFs to help give these children voice and representation of their family dynamics. She's got her doctoral degree in social work, which, like I said, she focused her dissertation on parental incarceration. And she also is the um, a professor at St. Mary University and the director of their field education for their master's in social work program. So I hope you learn and enjoy as much as I did from this conversation. Join us next month for a special webinar featuring Karin Andor, a previous guest on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Karin will dive deeper into the topic of childhood dissociation in this exciting event, offering attendees a chance to join the conversation and win exclusive prizes. The webinar will be on February 8th, 2024 at 10 a.m. Central. For more details and tickets, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We can't wait to see you there. Well, hi, Caitlin. Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. It is so good to see you. Yes, it's so good to see you too after so many years. I know. I'm probably going to date us a little bit more than we would like, but you and I go back many years and I had the honor of 
providing clinical and reflective supervision for you for many years. And I knew as I got to know you, like you were just one of those people, like you just had that it factor. I knew you were going places and that you had so much to contribute to our field and you can continue to contribute, um, especially in how you applied that to your passion and knowledge and skills and humility too, as you, you know, supported families who've been impacted by incarceration. And even though you were supposed to be learning from me, I learned so much from you. So I knew that I had to have you as a guest. So I'm so glad you're here. Very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, so let's start with you and, and bring some more of you into this conversation. And I would love to invite you to please share an attachment memory that feels really important and relevant to the work that you do. Yeah, so my work has always been focused on children with incarcerated parents. And although I don't have that lived experience, I do, you know, I grew up in a family where my father was living and dying with cancer my entire life. And so when my mom was pregnant with me, they doctors told them that he'd be lucky to get to my second birthday. And he did make it to my 15th birthday. Um, but I say all that just it, through all of this is that my mom was just such this source of calm and steadiness in our family that she really kind of just became that pillar for me through all of the ups and downs and the instability at times that would be coming with my dad's health. Um, and I always love there's this poem that has the line that says that she's the kind of mother who made breaking sound like laughter and whispers sound like Sunday morning prayers. And that was my mom. And um, like there were just so many disruptions in our family, you know, because of his recurrent cancer. Um, and I can remember one particular one. I was at that age where I'm like just a little too old to be picked up. You know, you're kind of growing up and you're just getting taller and like you just don't get picked up as much. And so I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was at that point where I wasn't getting picked up really. And so, but my dad had had an accident and I had been with some family friends when they had been alerted to this and that he was going to the hospital. And I just remember being so anxious and so like, I need my mom. I need, you know, I need to know what's going on and just really anxious. And when I finally was reunited with her, I remember she picked me up and I don't remember, like, I'm sure she was saying like, it'll be fine or whatever, you know, I'm sure she was saying things like that. But I just remember there was some joke that she made and she started laughing and then I started laughing and it was just kind of like all of a sudden this, like, everything's going to be fine. You know, like she just had that way to just smooth everything out, the rockiest of waters. And, you know, so that attachment that she had really cultivated with me, you know, before I was even born and like, she didn't know what life was going to hold for this family that was growing, um, you know, but it really provided me this sense of safety and groundedness that I have always been able to carry with me through my life. And so that's, she is, she is my attachment figure in my life that really brings that for me. And, you know, even though, again, I don't have that lived experience that children with incarcerated parents have, I know the power of a hug from your parent and really what that can do for you um, when you have that attachment with them. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Mm. Thank you for sharing that beautiful reflection about your mom. And it's no wonder you were such a grounded clinician <laughs> as we work together. So let's start with kind of the scope of this issue and the statistics. And I'm going to invite our listeners to really think about it too. Like if, if you all had to come up with a, a best guess of how many children and families are impacted by incarceration, like how, you know, kind of 
think to yourself, what would that number be? And then Caitlin, I'll have you share, you know, the data that you have. What, what do we know about the scope of this? Yeah. So the numbers are elusive um, because there's no formal data gathering methods uh, to really get the numbers a uh, solid number because everything is self-report and due to a lot of the mistrust and fears with the child welfare system, with the judicial system, a lot of parents don't report either upon their arrest or even while they're incarcerated that they do have children or the number of children that they may have. Um, however, we do know that there is an estimated 5 million children in America right now who are experiencing the incarceration of a parent, whether that is in jail or prison. And you know, to really give you like a visual, like that would be the entire population's combined of Wyoming, Vermont, Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Delaware, and the District of Columbia. Wow. And, or, you know, for those sports fans, that's filling up every single NFL stadium two and a half times is how many kids right now are living with a parent that is incarcerated. Mm -hmm. um, and we do know that an estimated 10 million children will experience the incarceration of their parent over the course of their childhood. So at some point they will, 10 million of our children in America will experience that. And so, you know, it's just, it's, again, those numbers are elusive. We can't give you like, it's, you know, a hard, hard number, but that knowing, you know, there's so many children that are not seen that are being impacted. Um, there, you know, there's roughly 2000 babies that are born within a carceral facility each year. Um, and again, those numbers may be more, maybe less, you know, depending on reporting methods within certain facilities. Um, but then the racial disparities are even so much more significant. Um, and because of our systemic factors and the racism and when it comes to uh, sentencing and things like that, that are so inherent within our system, um, we know that African-American children are seven times more likely to have an incarcerated parent than their white counterpart. Um, Latinx children are two times more likely. And then depending kind of where you are, indigenous children in Oklahoma are about two times more likely, but in the Dakotas, they're five times more likely. Um, you know, so just the disparities of how this is affecting different populations is pretty stark as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those numbers are staggering, even if we can't get a perfect number that and, and what's also staggering is like, we don't talk about this enough. You know, oftentimes we talk about children and families that are impacted by other losses, you know, whether it's the death of a parent or even if it's a parent that's been deployed in the military, then we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll celebrate that, you know, that that parent is a hero and, you know, to children who are impacted by this, what their parent is still their hero, you know, they may be incarcerated, but instead the, you know, we call them like the invisible children, right? Right. You know, and the shame and stigma that our society places on them and the messages that we've seen that we say about, you know, those that become incarcerated that, you know, our society is better off without them. And the, you know, these really stigmatizing and shameful comments that come and, you know, not, realizing or not taking into account that they are leaving behind families, they are leaving behind people who love them and care about them. And, you know, that their mistake, their choices are not all of who they are, you know, humans mm -hmm. are messy, humans are complicated. And, you know, there's so many other parts to us. And all of these people that are incarcerated also represent a family that's impacted by yeah. their incarceration. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's so hard to, you know, look at these kiddos and, you know, look at how they have such disenfranchised grief in all of this. And that you, like you said, their grief and the loss of their parents is not recognized, is not understood, is not, you know, even brought up in conversation. And because there's such a stigma around that incarceration piece, um, you know, there's, a researcher out there uh, that I have really loved her work. Her name is Dr. Pauline Boss, um, and she has founded kind of the uh, the topic of ambiguous grief, ambiguous mm-hmm. loss. And she did focused a lot of her work um, in you know with Vietnam uh, and then 9/11 and the Malaysian airliners and things like that, where people we know that they're gone, but there's not necessarily. Uh, a body to recover or something, but also just the uh, ambiguousness of when ha- what happens with, uh, you know, people who become addicted to drugs or alcohol and how, you know, they are physically present, but they're psychologically absent. Um, and how with incarceration, there's that physical absence, but there is a psychological presence for those children, for those families um, that are impacted and how that grief is so complicated when it, um, how they're learning to process, no matter how long the incarceration may be. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's bring attachment more into this. And it may seem somewhat obvious, like how is a child's attachment impacted when a parent is incarcerated and, and the, just their overall emotional development. But I know you've seen this firsthand and, and may also be able to speak to what the research says on this. So so break it down for us a little bit more. Yeah. So when we talk about how the kids are actually impacted, I've always believed that, you know, we can't talk about them without them and that their voices are the ones that matter in this conversation. And so I always like to bring their voices first before we really launch into kind of what the research, what everything is saying about how they get impacted. And I have a list of words that uh, children I've worked with over the years have used to describe the emotional impact of their parental incarceration experience. Um, So I'll start with that first. And um, so surprising, controlling, weak, unsafe, frustrating, relieving, strong, isolating, lonely, scared, helpless, angry, sad, stressful, confusing, betrayed, disappointed, upset, depressed, worried, shameful, resentful, and hopeful. Mm -hmm. And I think really when you look at this list of words of just, it really encompasses, but doesn't fully encompass how different every single child's story is Mm -hmm. and the incarceration of their parents and how it's impacting them. And it really is so dependent on a lot of ways of what was that relationship prior to the incarceration, um, not only with that child, but with whoever then their caregiver is, whether that is their other biological parent or family member, foster care, whatever that may be for them, that that's also going to impact their experience of their parents' incarceration. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think really understanding and being open to letting them lead that conversation and how they are impacted and knowing that, you know, we can look at the statistics, we can look at knowing, you know, 25% of children with incarcerated parents report being socially isolated because of the stigma related to their parents' incarceration. 
And we know the the high risk that comes with loneliness for mental health um, impacts and suicidality and just overall health impacts too that come from all of this. And But really looking at how is this child making sense of this separation from their parents and how can we step in as professionals, as family, as friends, whoever that may be in this child's life to help them figure out all of these puzzle pieces and make it as make sense to them as best as it can in a system that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how you bring it back to their voice and that those are the voices we need to be hearing when we think about how does this impact their attachment? Well, let's hear it directly from them. There's also a great resource from Michael Trout, who's been a friend of the Knowledge Center at Chaddock and, and of this podcast as a, as a previous guest. And he has a free downloadable. So we'll make sure to to link that uh, video called They Took My Parents Away. And it also really speaks from a child's perspective about the different narratives that they start to create as they're trying to make meaning of this and fill in holes where they can. Um, So can you talk to us more about some of the narratives? You gave us a great feel for all the different feelings, but what about the story that, that they're telling themselves that go with those feelings? Yeah, definitely. I mean, kids are great listeners, even though sometimes we say that they're selective listeners when we want them to do something. But, you know, they hear everything that we don't always think they do. And they, they're they piecing together information that they're uh, hearing from different people in their lives to try to make sense. Um, and I, I really I remember working with one young boy who I met him when he was five um, and his dad prior to his incarceration. Um, you know, was was involved in his life. He didn't live with him, but he was involved. He was around. There was a fairly healthy relationship there. Um, but when he became incarcerated, the adults around this child were talking and hushed voices or little snippets that they didn't always think that he was hearing everything, but he was. And he pieced together this story about how, you know, he was hearing dad had broken into a house and he had robbed somebody and he had had a gun. And in the boy's mind, guns meant you kill somebody like that was if you have that, that's what you do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and so he really put together that, well, my dad's in prison because he murdered somebody. This was the story that he had pieced together for himself. And he spent two over two years fearful of his father and not wanting to go visit him until he was finally able to share with us the story of what he believed his father had done which was not what the true story was. And there was no murder. There wasn't uh, some of these very egregious things that he was thinking happened. And so when we were able to then have a conversation with him and developmentally appropriately tell him what happened, you know, and kind of give him a more cohesive narrative for what happened, he was then excited, uh, you know, still apprehensive and nervous. It had been several years since he'd seen his dad, but he was then excited to rebuild that relationship there with him. Um, and it really just took having that honest conversation and understanding his perspective on things and how he had put everything together to then be like, oh, buddy, like that's, you know, that isn't what happened. Let's really talk about the story and let's understand that and let's understand maybe why dad made the choices he did, but we have to include dad in on that conversation as well. And best case scenario is you have a parent who is incarcerated, who's willing to participate in that conversation to build that narrative for, for the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that too, as we go, 
in terms of how to do that and and what the different variables might be with whether the parents are choosing to stay involved. But I also remember you in supervision talking a lot about the mistakes that the adults would often make with how they're sharing this and contributing to this this narrative. And I think they're very well-intentioned mistakes. I'm sure they would all say that they're trying to protect their the child that they're caring and loving on and yet sometimes that that ends up being very counterproductive to their attachment and their security. So what mistakes have you seen them make and how would you support families that are going through this with really building a healthier, more complete and honest narrative? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do think that the adults are well-intentioned and they don't, you know, they don't know how to make sense of what's going on and they don't know how to uh, really talk about it because again, our society doesn't allow those conversations um, and allow this as a narrative in our in the fabric of story and family life here in America. Um, it's one that we really try to keep in that dark corner. Um, you know, but there's lots of, you know, a lot of families will go with the narrative of mom or dad's away at school or away at work uh, when they're really incarcerated. And, you know, the kids figure out things don't add up for them, you know, when it's like, well, wait, you went to work and you came back at the end of the day. It's been months since my mom went to work and I haven't seen her. And, you know, and like they 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 make sense of it. They start to figure it out. They find the gaps in the story and then they get more confused or more emotional about, you know, really that parent and what's going on because they don't understand. They don't have the truth. And, you know, when I whenever I would work with families that, uh, you know, were when I was first introducing them, maybe the kids hadn't been told yet or there was still a very new thing of it was always a. I, my honesty is my policy and we're going to enter into this and we're going to be supportive and figuring out how to have these conversations in the most honest way that is going to be developmentally appropriate. You know, a four-year-old doesn't need to know all the details, but a 15-year-old's going to Google it anyways and find all the details. And so Mm -hmm. let's figure out how we can have this conversation with them um, to make sure that they understand what is really going on in the family narrative here. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, many of the adults I'm working with are the ones that are really uncomfortable with that reality themselves. And so then they don't know how to have that conversation. And that uncomfortability gets projected onto the children, you know, mm-hmm. when in fact, kids are so open and yearn to know the truth. They want to know what's going on. And, you know, I've had kids as young as three and four be able to know the truth and handle it and make sense of it for their narrative. Because when those kids are on the playground and you know, their friends are asking them where their mom or dad is, or why is it grandma that's always picking you up? They make up a story anyways, to be telling Mm -hmm. people. And so, you know, if we can help them be more comfortable with their family story and know that there's not shame, they don't need the shame of what's going on and how to, you know, but we can only do that by sharing the truth with them. Um, You know, so again, it's, I think we, with the little kids, it's talking about, you know, when you make an unsafe choice, you have to have a consequence. And those can look like adult timeouts. And a prisoner jail is where you go take your adult timeout. And, you know, using that language with kids, because they understand what timeout means. You know, they understand these, like, you know, when you're being unsafe or whatever, you know, they get those terms. And so really relating it to that developmental level for them 
And, you know, and the older kids may want to know the difference between jail and prison. What is the difference between those? You know, a lot of people use them interchangeably when they're not interchangeable words. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really helping them understand that, you know, what's going on, but really being, you know, uh, I think it's really important to also iterate to the children that, you know, their parent is in this facility. They're being fed. You know, they have things to do like reading books or going outside or watching TV. um, And they're hopefully learning how to make safer choices, you know, when they come out. But I always, always caution parents of, you know, we don't want to make the carceral facility seem like a vacation, but we also don't want to scare them. And but Mm -hmm. we don't want to make promises. We don't want to say, you know, mom or dad's going to be home by Christmas or when they get out, they're never going to use drugs again. You know, like we don't want to make those promises because we can't keep those promises to the child and we don't want to set up the other parent for something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, being very just this is the facts that we have and here they are developmentally appropriate for you, um, you know, and here's how we're going to help you understand the narrative and, and then stopping there and letting them ask questions. You know, I've had a lot of kids just want to know what color is the building? You know, they want to know like, so sometimes it's like, I'll go on Google and I'll look up that facility and be like, oh, is it gray brick or red brick? Usually it's one of the two, you know, and like figure out with them or what do they wear? They also, they want to know those things. Like what color clothes do they have on? Do they have a, they, they call it a roommate. Do they have a roommate? You know, mm-hmm. they want to know, like, those are the kinds of questions that they want to, they're trying to make sense of what does the day to day look like for that person? Mm-hmm. And so as the caregiver, as the person, you know, working with that child, whether you're the caregiver or counselor, whoever it is, sticking to the facts, being very, you know, like open to their questions and saying, and if you don't know, saying, let's learn together, let's look at it together. You know, and some of them, you may need to Google yourself first to make sure the images that you're showing are what you feel are okay to show your child. But there's lots of good animated, you know, like images out there too, to show like what something may look like. Um, there's lots of good books out there. Like this is one that, um, kind of walks kids through the process of like what it is when you're in jail, um, and like the different steps to being incarcerated, like the fingerprinting, it really goes through and breaks all of these things down for kids so that they can really understand what is this. And it's not this thing that we see on TV and in the movies and, it's usually a lot simpler than what, than what gets projected, you know, mm-hmm. and, and taking some of that emotion piece out of describing what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The book you just showed, I saw briefly, it's called my daddy is in jail. Mm-hmm. Who's the author of that one, Caitlin? Um, Janet Binder. Okay. And I know we're going to maybe talk about some other, other books too, as, mm-hmm. as we go, But I think what you're describing when we think about that from an attachment perspective, it's like, you know, we, again, well-intentioned adults often think, you know, they're, they're protecting their child and really what children don't know can often be more harmful than giving them, like you said, developmentally appropriate facts so that we could build conversations around what color is the building? What color is their outfit? You know, that from an attachment perspective is going to help them feel connected to their parent who they, you know, may not be able to see or talk to every day, but that there's, they're, they're getting information about what 
their environment is like. And, and, you know, it may stir up more questions and fears too, but it, it, it sets the tone of, we can have this conversation. We can hold these fears. Cause I could also see from a young child's perspective where they may, you know, if they hear time out, if this is a family that also uses time out that they may fear like, well, if I go to timeout, am I never going to come out or, mm. you know, so I think that there's ways to do that in, you know, in doses of when, the, when those things come up, but it's, it's setting this, this container for, we can, we can have these conversations when you need to. Um, so I love that you, that you share that message with all the families that you were were working with and supported them because it's like you said that it's often not only well-intentioned, but like, they don't know there's not, there's not a place for this. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and a lot of times incarceration comes as a surprise to families that, you know, they didn't imagine they'd find themselves in this situation. And so the adults are also going through their own emotional, you know, toll through all of this and whether this is a parent like another parent biological parent that was left all of a sudden single parenting and trying to figure it out or a grandparent who's now assuming responsibility for children that they didn't financially plan for you know or other family members or you know whether that's kinship care into foster care you know but really just like you said holding space for these kids to ask questions and know that it's okay to ask questions we want you to ask questions And we want you to understand what this is and how it affects you and that it's not your fault. And there's nothing that you could have done to prevent this, or there's nothing you could have done to get them out sooner. And because a lot of times kids start to build those narratives when they don't have the whole truth is that if I just act better, grandma will let dad come home or things like that. You know, when it's like, that's your behavior, who you are, your entire being has nothing to do with all of with those factors, you know, and making sure you help the child, you know, understand that there's no responsibility on their part mm-hmm. uh, for the situation at hand. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what else have you learned that helps support healthy attachment, even though there's these challenges, including it could be that the parent who's incarcerated may not want contact or may not want the truth shared. So how do you help families navigate this in, and the different nuances that come with that? Mm-hmm. Communication. I think, you know, we've already been talking about that. That's like the biggest key that I feel like with these families is making sure you're communicating with the kids, you're listening to them, you're giving them space to share how they're feeling, the questions they have, and that you're answering them. You know, that you're not just placating those questions or those feelings, that you're really engaging with what they are saying, Um, you know, and again, kind of, I started at the top with just the messiness of being human and the choices that we make and that their parents' choices and mistakes are not just who they are. There's so many other sides to them. Um, If you are able to talk about the positive memories of their parents, you know, there may only be one or two and that's okay, you know, but sharing what you can that's positive sharing photos, making sure, you know, that the child has something if they want it, a photo to look at of their parent. Um, And if you don't feel like you can be the one to do that, find someone who can, whether that's a therapist or a mentor or another family member, someone who can support your child through this process. Um, 
you know, I've, I've had parents that are incarcerated that don't want their children to know all of these things. And, you know, I try to facilitate a conversation with that parent to talk about why it's so vital that we do give this child a full narrative. Um, you know, but also I talk with whoever the caregiver is say, you know, you are the one getting to make this choice at this point of what you feel is best. That's going to help your child. That's going to, you know, help your household, help them succeed in school, whatever it may be that they're going to need to be able to achieve these other goals that you have for them. And if that's being able to understand and have a narrative of where their parent is, then that's what we need to do. And there's developmentally appropriate ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And even even with the most, you know, yucky of crimes that happen. And, you know, there's ways to have these conversations to help children understand. And a lot of times they're going to be a lot more understanding than you think. And they're going to accept these answers a lot easier than you think they might. Um, You know, they're going to have emotional reactions. They're going to have, you know, a response to it. But once they're able to integrate that understanding, typically they feel so much better having that information. Mm hmm. Are there other rituals or activities that you've utilized in your work that have helped the child maintain that connection with with the parent who's incarcerated? Yeah, so I think like I love this question because kids love predictability. They love knowing like, you know, how they can interact with mom or dad and knowing what they're going to get. Um, and so when it comes to the rituals, it really just depends. Are they going to get in-person visits, phone visits, letters? Are there things, you know, there? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, our carceral systems are so punitive to families financially that to make visits happen, like visits can be very expensive because the majority of parents are housed over 100 miles away from their homes, uh, from where their families are. And so even getting there is uh, burden, you know, and fed, people who are federally incarcerated are on average over 500 miles away from their families. And so, you know, in-person visits are, you know, unfortunately a luxury that most families don't get to engage in. Um, but if they do, and, you know, being able to really encourage like you know, making a fun handshake with your parent when, you know, you get to see them. And because a lot of prisons and facilities have rules about touching, you know, a lot of times there's like, you get a hug when you enter and a hug when you exit. And that's about it. There's no, uh, not a lot of physical interaction in during the visit. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's a fun handshake that they have when they are entering and exiting or, you know, certain phrases that maybe they said to them before they left, um, you know, or that it can be something that comes about that, you know, they can have as their phrase that they get to say back and forth to each other. Um, you know, so really creating that ritual for you. Um, I always encourage that incarcerated parents to just be very thankful for the child to just say, you know, I'm so happy to see you. Thank you for taking the time to come see me. You are so important to me, you know, because you're also, letting the child know, like, you're taking away half your day or your whole day to be able to come here. And I know that maybe you had a birthday party or a basketball game that you're missing out on to be able to come to this visit. And even though I understand you're choosing to come see me, that that's still a loss in your life too, that you're not getting to participate in something else possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and so really validating that child's choice to say, I want to come visit you Mm -hmm. um, and thanking them for that. And then, you know, on letters, I think like really just having that 
the ritual of like, you know, sharing the day to day, like sharing things, like letting them know what you're doing, having the kids do it, sharing memories through those letter writings. Um, I've had families play tic-tac-toe back and forth between letters um, or drawings that like, you know, they'll, the child may start the drawing and then the parent finishes or vice versa, um, you know, where then they're getting to participate in something that, you know, when you're not incarcerated, something that's a luxury that you engage in with your child that you don't even think about, that you're playing these little games sitting at the dining room table or at a restaurant, you know, that then it's still something that they can engage in too, together um, to have fun and incorporate play into their dynamic. Oh, I love this. And I think it, it, we also have to acknowledge that, that this is a way to stay connected and that there's still this grief and loss piece for the parent, for the family that, that the child is, is with, and is also trying to help hold this. And for the child, you know, that we're going to do all that we can to help you maintain this connection. And yet, you may only get to have two hugs and you have to go into this sterile facility and, you know, might feel really scary seeing all these, these uniformed staff and, and things like that. So I know that was something that you said you really noticed in your work was, was definitely a gap of whether it's children's books or resources or just, you know, how to prepare children for these visits. Oh my gosh. Yes. Like I went into this as a new baby social worker that <laughs> hadn't ever been in a facility and didn't know either. And it was a steep learning curve for me too, to know how do you prepare to go into these? And they're all, everyone is different and every shift can be different. It depends sometimes on who the correctional officer is that is doing the processing on how things are handled. And, you know, some have a very warm and inviting you know, demeanor towards the children and others don't. And that is very palpable to whoever is interacting with them. Um, you know, but visiting is, I always say it's one of the hardest, but most joyful things that you can do to experience with this child. Um, but it is a lot of work to prepare as an adult and to prepare the child. Um, you know, I always, you know, always check the website or call up there the morning before your visit, make sure that they're not on lockdown, that visits are allowed to be happening, that visits for your particular person is allowed to happen, um, because sometimes they may be on an individual lockdown and not able to have visits. So, you know, the last thing you want to do is get all the way there and, you know, and then be turned away once you get there. Um, that's the worst feeling for everybody involved that mm -hmm. you've done all the, you, there's so much anticipation and then to be let down so abruptly. Um, so I always say that there's just also such a process to set up the visits, you know, make sure that, you know, some states make it easy to, you know, get on visiting lists to have the paperwork, all of that. Others are harder, you know, that to get the paperwork, to get on these visiting lists, to get approved. Um, the forms of ID in a lot of states, you have to have two forms of identification, a driver's license and a security card. It's a social security card to get into the facility as an adult. And then depending on the age of the child, sometimes they want the child to have an ID card, even though they are under the age of 18. And, you know, and so <clears throat> again, every facility, like when I was doing a lot of prison visits when I was in Illinois, you know, even there, like they have a system, but every prison was different. And some wanted the 10 year old to have their school ID with them. And some didn't, and some didn't care that the school didn't give out IDs at that age. And they still needed some identification of the child. And, 
you know, so there were, there's just a lot of things there, you know, red tape to get through even into the visit. Um, dress code. This is also something I would stress a lot that I encountered a lot with the different kiddos um, of making sure that you know the dress code, that everybody is following the dress code, um, the children included, because they are not exempt from any of the dress code rules. Um, I always said, you know, pair of tennis shoes, baggy jeans, and a t-shirt is your best, best bet, you know, and um, you know, but really making sure that you know what that facility requires um, for their dress code. And, you know, and then one thing we would do with the children to prepare is that there's always a pat down process. Their body is going to be physically touched by these correctional officers as they're getting pat down before each visit. And at the end of each visit that they're going to have to take their shoes off, that they have to, they can't wear jewelry. They have to open their mouths to have them look in, you know, like very violating things that, you know, that you have to prepare these children for to say, you know, in order to do this, this is something we have to do that as adults, that sometimes can be that barrier to say, I don't know if I want to put my child through that. Um, you know, but if you prepare with them and you talk to them about this and you talk to them about why this has to happen and that, you know, some people do make unsafe choices and they want to bring things in that wouldn't be safe for everybody. And so this is part of how they make sure everybody gets to stay safe and, you know, using again, very basic language when it comes to that, to help them understand those processes um, that go along. And then, you know, knowing like a lot of kids, it's just also when you talk about rituals, like we think about we eat together. That's like a societal ritual of, you know, like let's go grab a coffee, let's go have dinner together to catch up. You know, there's always this food is involved in so many of our interactions. And in carceral facilities, it can become this luxury item because the vending machines are so expensive, you know, like there's markups on everything there and the family coming in is the ones who are having to pay for the food, um, you know, and so it's knowing there's, you know, whether you're going to prepare or not to be able to share food with the, you know, with your loved one that's incarcerated and your children that are there. Um, or is that not something that may be financially feasible and talking about that, making sure everybody's well fed before you go in? Because um, it depends. It can be a lot. I've had to wait and waiting in the reception area with children for 90 minutes plus before we even get processed into a visit. And you're just sitting there and, you know, and I'm I don't know if you've ever sat any waiting room with a young child, but 90 <laughs> minutes is a very long time for anybody to be sitting there, let alone a child, um, you know, and so really making sure that you you are prepared as best you can, knowing you don't know what's going to meet you when you get there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, again, just really talking through the child on the front end, really heavy practicing these things. One thing that is also really important and helpful to talk to the kids about is the loudness that's in there of how loud it can be, especially the doors. Um, because a lot of them have these automatic locks on them and they, you know, there's not like a suspension kind of gently closing those doors, you know, they're, they're usually a very loud bang. And so especially children who've had trauma, um, experiences or anything like that, that they are prepared to know that the, what the environment is going to sound like when they're in there. Um, and you know, there's YouTubes out there that you can kind of hear. I mean, we hear it on shows too, you know, when they close, uh, cell doors or things like that, you can hear the noise. Um, and so really just making sure you're preparing them that way. Um, but support, you know, again, 
I know this sounds like a lot and it sounds like a lot of reasons not to go, but given, you know, when you give the child the choice, when you say, you know, we're going to have to go through all of these things, you're going to have to, you know, endure all of this stuff along the way, almost all of them would still choose to go visit. Mm-hmm. And because at the end of all of that is their parent. And, yes. you know, and so knowing that, you know, some facilities really are trying hard to make them a little bit more child friendly, um, where they do have games that you can play together, like Uno or checkers are kind of always the most common that you'll find in every visiting room um, or coloring supplies where they get to sit and color with their parent, you know, like, so even though maybe food isn't the ritual you can bring into that interaction, there's still some games or some um, artwork that you can bring in as a ritual that you get to engage in with your parent um, when you're in there. And so, and, you know, I always encourage people if they're looking to donate at the holiday time or any other time of the year, you know, facilities are always looking for donations of crayons and coloring books or games, you know, and ch- ch- or books, check with your facility, you know, but, or puzzles are a big thing too, you know, like they're always looking for uh, those things to be donated because that's how they get those things. No one's supplying them other than through donations. And so um, check with your local facility and see, you know, is that something that you could provide to them to help make that a more welcoming and supportive environment for the child that may be entering into that room? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and women's prisons tend to always be a little bit more friendly when it comes to what's available in visiting rooms and things like that. Men's prisons, not as often, unfortunately, um, but dads are still really important and dads matter. And, you know, getting to make sure that they have some of that same access to ways to engage with their child on those visits is so important. Mm -hmm. Yes, those were all such good tips. I remember hearing you talk about this and I'm like, just stuff I would have never thought of. And I'm sure that the families that are considering visits aren't thinking of. And so... Hopefully, you know, there's more and more resources that can become available or and supports that kind of guide families through this process. Because like you said, the majority of children will say, yes, I want these visits because their drive for attachment trumps all other, you know, concerns and fears and all of that. And especially if there's, there's somebody in the family that can, or whoever is caring for them that can really help them feel held and safe during this process and and let them know what to expect. So. And I think a little bit, sorry to interrupt of just, you know, that ritual piece of even knowing that it's important for whoever's taking them on that visit to have a ritual afterwards too, to help with the regulation of that child after the visit, because they are going to be very dysregulated afterwards, um, you know, when you're leaving and there's usually tears and there's, you know, some either clinginess, you know, them needing a lot of physical touch afterwards, or there's some retreat in them too. And so, but what, however your child's reaction, but making sure that you have a ritual afterwards, whether that means you guys always go to the same McDonald's afterwards, there seems to always be a McDonald's or a subway near every prison. And so those are typically your two most common ones, but you know, that maybe that's always the thing is you always go there or you always have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the car afterwards, you know, that there's some sort of ritual connection to help your child afterwards that you are seeing them, that you are still emotionally present for them in their attempts to re-regulate themselves Mm -hmm. after this visit. 
Yes, that's a great suggestion too. You mentioned that some facilities and especially maybe more women's are becoming more family friendly. I mean, all around this topic, besides thinking about it just from the attachment perspective, there's so many reform rabbit holes that we could go down, including like you mentioned at the beginning around mass incarceration and especially the way this impacts more communities of of color and communities that have been intentionally marginalized. There's also just reform within the facilities themselves to understand why this is so important for these children to be able to have safety when they come to these facilities and and connect with their their parent and loved ones. And so I remember you you mentioned something about some facilities that are allowing parents to like record them reading a book to their child. I'm just wondering what else is there and you know is there more that we can do to advocate for these kinds of meaningful changes for the sake and well-being of these of these children and the adults because ultimately these adults may be getting out and are going to be reintegrated into our society and it's better for their well-being as well which is probably something we may not think about enough Right. I mean, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated will be coming out at some point and they're going to be our neighbors. They're going to be our fr- our kids' friends, parents at school. They're going to be the people we interact with at the grocery store, you know. And so knowing that, you know, wouldn't we want them to be set up the best way possible for their return? Um, you know, but with the kids. So there's um, <clears throat> an organization based out of California called uh, the San Francisco Children of Incarcerated Parents Partnership. Um, And many years ago, they put out the Children of Incarcerated Parents Bill of Rights, and they've done a lot of advocacy in that Bay Area around this. But I think that this is something that could this Bill of Rights get out and more communities and more people are using this as an advocacy tool to say why this is important, I think would be so important, you know, so vital and so, you know, helpful. So there's eight rights and I'll read them. Because again, some of them are just so basic that it's like, how is this not happening? How does this have to be written down as a right of this child? Um, So it starts with, I have the right to be kept safe and informed at the time of my parents' arrest. I have the right to speak with, see, and touch my parent. I have the right to be heard when decisions are made about me. I have the right to support as I face my parents' incarceration. I have the right to be considered when decisions are made about my parent. I have the right not to be judged, blamed, or labeled because my parent is incarcerated. I have the right to be well cared for in my parents' absence. And I have the right to a lifelong relationship with my parent. Mm. You know, and again, these are so basic, you know, that you're like, how, like, how is this something that we have to advocate for? Mm-hmm. You know, but I think when you see this in black and white, you see this written down and saying, like, man if they there's a reason they had to write this down because these things aren't happening Mm -hmm. and using this as a tool to go out to advocate to for the support for these children in your local area with maybe your local facility you know if it were statewide you know federal it'd be great you know let's let's dream big on some of these you know but that it all we can do is start where we are and making increasing the awareness raising the consciousness level of the individuals that are nearby Mm-hmm. 
And what about the, or is it an organization or is it that more facilities are becoming more open to, like I said, the recording of the children's book? So typically those are organizations that come in um, to do those. And so um, Angel Tree is a national organization that provides like Christmas gifts that you can get children signed up for um, on those lists that they receive gifts from their incarcerated parents. Um, that's one big brothers, big sisters. Uh, a lot of those have, uh, specialized programming for children with incarcerated parents, not every single one, but a lot of them do. Um, there's a great, uh, list. It's not, um, going to be a fully comprehensive list for every state, but it does have some awareness out there. Um, that's run by Rutgers university. Um, that's the national resource center for children with incarcerated parents. Um, and I'll send you the link that we can post as well, um, but that they have a list of resources for each state that's out there. Um, and again, it's not necessarily a comprehensive list because new things come up, things go away, um, but that you could look at your state to see, you know, what what is there? What are the gaps? And maybe you can start something that says, you know, how do I partner with our facilities to be able to provide this service of some kind? Mm-hmm. And transportation, I know that there are some organizations that can help with that. I was listening to one podcast where they mentioned um, something, get on the bus, or I think it was in LA, where they provide transportation for children who have parents who are incarcerated. But, you know, there's, there's so many ways to keep building on these resources so that things like geography don't have to be a barrier, but it's understandable how they can be if if there's not enough resources to support these kind of visits and awareness about why they're so important. Right. And a desire on the carceral facilities um, in to want to support this, you know, and it comes with education there with the staff um, and the leadership within these facilities to also help them understand why this is important. Um, and that, you know, that they may have whatever their personal beliefs may be, but that doesn't matter when it comes to, you know, a child's well-being and, you know, that their facility, they could be a leader in this process and showing that, you know, they can maintain safety on their end, maintain all the things that they are concerned about while also being very welcoming and inclusive of families and supporting the uh, maintenance between these families. Mm-hmm. The other thing you talked about is how this is messy. And I remember some of the cases you shared about, you know, parents who have done some scary things and the way that impacts the child, the whole family system. And then we're talking about helping the child maintain a connection and attachment. You know, I think we also have to acknowledge there may be times where that's not safe to do that. And also, if there's a way to make that safe, that we're still holding, like you said, that this person has many different facets to them, like we all do, and that maybe they have done something really terrible. But how do you help families and children navigate that or reconcile that around, here's my parent, and they've they've done something terrible or harmful, but this connection and attachment still matters. Mm-hmm. And it's, Particularly difficult, especially if the child has been the victim of that parent um, and maybe the other siblings were not involved and were never victims and don't have that same perspective of the parent, And so they struggle. There's a different grief there of knowing maybe my parent could act one way towards me 
that felt safe and was fine, but that they were very unsafe towards my sibling. And, you know, and just even the complicated, like that just adds to the complicated grief that they're going through. Um, and really looking at, you know, kids within that family that they have to be treated different. Every child needs to be treated different in their own process, but particularly in families like that. And that, you know, making sure that obviously the child who is the victim is the utmost safety concern, you know, and making sure that they are being heard about how life is going to feel safe and who's around them and how they're being supported, um, you know, and finding, and if that other biological parent or whoever the caregiver is, is not able to be that full person for them, that then they, there is someone else that they find, you know, it reminds me of a case where there were two siblings and one was the victim of uh, the father and the other sibling had no awareness, had no negative interactions, you know, very much that they, he believed the father you know, was perfect and was his hero. Um, and when it came to light, what he was doing to the other child, you know, it really crushed the entire family. Um, and the, a lot of the family didn't want to believe the victim and didn't want to believe that child and, you know, struggled to make sense of all of it. Um, and this child often was left kind of on their own Island of, you know, of, grief and I'm the one who ruined our family. I'm the one who brought this to awareness and now everything is changing and everyone's mad at me. And, you know, like a lot of that shame and that guilt this child was feeling. And, you know, luckily as a professional, I was able to step in. I was there with the family. I was able to intervene and, you know, find the people in the family who could support this child and who could keep that child safe through all of this uh, process and the court process and everything while the other families could also support the sibling, um, you know, in that this sibling's very different experience. Um, those ones, it's so complicated and it's so, there's not a solid one answer for it because every case is so different. And, you know, but really, I think again, starting where we started of listening to them, like hearing them, making space that they can share and that you're hearing it without judgment and that you're hearing it without your own, this is what I'm going to do. You know, what does the child need you to do? What do they want you to do? Um, and sometimes, and that's, they're not going to have those answers right away. It's going to take time to find those answers for them. Um, but really keeping their insights at the forefront of the decisions you're making, um, you know, but and eventually through therapy, through processing, kids do start to understand the complicated nature of being human. And especially when someone is making very different choices towards other people um, and how that can be really crushing to your understanding of who that person was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, unfortunately there's not, there's not a great answer, but it's, right. it's really just, you know, letting them lead the way a lot of the times and what they need. Yes. And I think it really speaks to the need to have more training for caregivers, parents, family members, professionals, teachers, you know, we may have a broader understanding of attachment and loss and grief and trauma, but this is a very niche area that we need to continue to educate ourselves on and be humbled by and hear the voices of, of the children and families that are impacted by this, which I think you just did 
so beautifully in your work. And I know you've created some children's books and resources. So let's get more into the resources that you have created and because those are free and then any other resources. And if we don't have time for all of them, we'll also make sure to link all of this to you in our show notes. Yeah. Yeah. So several years ago when I was still, I was maybe like not quite the baby social worker, but I wasn't super experienced yet, but you know, I use a lot of storybooks. As you can see behind me, I use a lot of storybooks with the kids that I work with and helping uh, them find examples of narratives that they can relate to and for whatever maybe that they're struggling with. Um, And I was working with one particular little girl and she just said, you know, I really like this story, but it's not my family's story. And I didn't have something that was her family's story. And, you know, it kind of caught me of like, oh, you're right. And I don't know, I don't have that for you right now. And so I, you know, young gumption took it upon myself to then say, I'm going to write that story. And I'm going to put that out there for you to be able to see yourself in a story, see your family's narrative reflected back to you. Um, And so I partnered with um, Safer Society Press, who does a lot of work. Um, They're a Quaker organization. And so they do a lot of uh, work around carceral systems and uh, criminal justice and things like that. And so worked with them to produce some different stories. And so I have three different stories that we did um, with them and that uh, they kind of showcase their storybooks that showcase different narratives. Um, But at the end of each at the end of each book is blank spaces for the children to be able to then write their own story. Um, And so I found that just to be so important that, you know, this may reflect a piece of your story, but it's not yours. And so let's give you the space to write yours down, to draw your pictures that show what you went through. Um, And so that was really important to me. And so those are available for free because again, we didn't want it to be a financial barrier for families to be able to access storybooks that maybe their children could find reflection in. And so they are available for free PDF download on uh, Safer Society's website um, as well. And so that's something that, you know, was really important to me. Um, Another passion of mine at this point too is educating the future social workers coming behind me. And so Um, I'm a professor and the field director for the University of St. Mary based in Leavenworth, Kansas, um, which if you know anything about Leavenworth, Kansas, there's a lot of prisons there. Um, And but we have an online, a fully online MSW program um, where we have a forensic specialization where we are uh, preparing the social workers that are coming to be able to navigate these carceral and judicial systems through the coursework that we're providing them that, you know, I didn't always get, I had a few, I was lucky to have a few kind of elective courses that I could choose to take when I was coming through school that uh, were surrounding these topics, um, but offering a forensic concentration for these master's students coming through that they can really enter into the workforce a little bit more prepared. You know, I think you're all, you're never fully prepared and you're always going to be learning, but that there's some, some knowledge behind what they're going to be entering into. Mm -hmm. And so, Um, Yeah, so I think like those are the main ones. Um, The other one that I really like to highlight for the little kids, um, and I love that it is a bilingual, it comes in Spanish and English, um, is Sesame Street. So Sesame Street has a project called uh, Little Little People Big Challenges, uh, or Little Children Big Challenges. And so they took on incarceration as one of their topics. Um, And so they have these booklets that they give out um, that have 
stories in them. Um, it also comes with a CD. If you have a CD player, um, I don't, they, I think they also have a lot of videos online now too, because I know a lot of people don't have computers with CD players anymore. Um, but they also have these different stories and talking about particularly, you know, this little girl, um, that, uh, is experiencing incarceration within her family and how, uh, she navigates those conversations, um, and makes sense of what's going on. And so, I love this uh, resource for the little kids um, to be able to use. And so I'll definitely, I'll give you um, more storybooks and um, some different podcasts that are out there. One of my favorite podcasts is called We Got Us Now, which is um, run by, and it's a podcast and a website, but it's run by people, uh, young adults and I think there's still children too that they use on there that have lived experience um, within this. And so they do really amazing work. And I think that having, you know, their voices at the forefront of all of this is the best thing that we can do um, for this population is hearing from them and going off of what they have to say. Yes, absolutely. I stumbled upon their website and podcast as well. It's founded by Ebony Underwood and, and it was so enlightening and powerful to hear, like you said, from their lived experiences and the work and the advocacy and the things that they're doing. So we'll make sure to link that as well. So to end us off, Caitlin, this has been so informative and, and helpful. What do you envision for children and the future who, you know, th for these children who've been impacted by parental incarceration? You know, my, my hope is that any child who is impacted by parental or loved one incarceration is that they are able to have adults in their life who support them, who see them, who hear them, that don't add shame to their story, that let them know that they are loved and they are seen. You know, my hope is that all of these children have that in their life and that we know that just having one single adult in your life who provides those things for you is such a resiliency factor. Uh, for you. And so that's always a hope of mine. Um, and again, those eight Bill of Rights that I read from San Francisco's Children of Incarcerated Parents Partnership that, you know, I, my hope is that every jurisdiction across our nation can really take those into account and, you know, is impacted by those words and knowing like they need, they want the children in their community to be seen and heard and taken care of through those Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I think I will join you in that in that vision, and I hope to continue to learn from you. I think there's ways that we can think about getting involved from a more systemic macro level all the way down to my, micro level of individual families that are impacted by this. We need to keep lifting that veil of shame and bringing more awareness and love into this, this problem. So thank you so much for sharing with us, Caitlin, as always, it's an honor to be with you. And I look forward to any ways we can, we can keep learning together. Yes. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our time together. Thanks. Take care. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and share with your friends and coworkers. You can also connect and chat with other listeners through our Facebook group. On behalf of all of us here at the Knowledge Center, Thanks for tuning in. Yeah.